Uh, do turn back in your Bibles to Acts 18. We are going to look at um, 1 Timothy, I promise. Um, but let's just briefly look at Acts 18. Um, forgive me if my voice goes, either it's just really cold outside, which affects my chest, or the boiling heat in here. Um, I haven't put the heating on in my house all winter as much as I can avoid it anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, this kind of heat, I'm not used to it. Um, I see you're in T-shirts at the back there, but okay, good. Well, in Acts 18, the Apostle Paul's in Corinth with Silas and with Timothy. Okay, see the connection now. Um, they were occupied with the word, it says, testifying that Jesus is the Christ. However, they came up against a great deal of opposition. The Jews there opposed and reviled Paul. But Jesus said to him, it's interesting, this bit's in red letters in some Bibles, because Jesus said to him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months hearing, uh, sorry, teaching the word of God among them. However, that wasn't the end of it in Corinth. Let me just read Acts 18 from verse 12. You need to have two readings. It's an Anglican thing, isn't it? We've got to have, this is our second reading. Uh, Acts 18, verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it was a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So I think Luke is trying to show his readers that the early Christian evangelists were not guilty of any wrongdoing or vicious crime, as he puts it here, even though they were accused of error by a united front of their religious opponents. The state, in the person of Gallio, rightly kept out of that theological dispute as it should. But Gallio was also clearly wrong, wasn't he, to allow them to then beat these people up, to beat up Sosthenes, a leader amongst the Christians, and actually the co-writer of 1 Corinthians, right in front of him. The state should keep out of religious disputes, but it should preserve and protect its citizens from bodily harm. What did Paul do, though? That's the important thing. What did Paul do after this two-pronged assault, an outrageous affront to the maintenance of law and order, and a brutal, religiously motivated attack on a fellow Christian? Did he flee? Did he run? Did he give it all up as just not worth the effort and it's a bit of a lost cause? Acts 18.18 18 says, after this, after all of that, Paul stayed many days longer. 
Now, he may have been tempted to move on to pastures new, but he chose instead to stay in this hostile environment for the sake of the Lord's people in that place. Stay. It's the same word as in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Do turn back to that now or um, click on that or whatever it is you do on your device. Scroll down to it with your thumbs. 1 Timothy 1. Paul tells Timothy, who was there in Corinth with him, remember, all the way back in those days, he says, do the same as I did. I know things are difficult for you as Bishop of Ephesus, Timothy, but don't go. Fight the temptation to up sticks and leave or retire or resign or retrain. What he says instead is, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. Remain, stay, persevere. Even though it's going to involve conflict. Ephesus was no easy parish for, for Timothy. There was a guy there who, Paul says, had done him a great deal of harm. And no doubt he would have it in for Timothy as well. And yet he told him, nevertheless, to stay. Now I'm not saying that this is a sort of direct and prophetic word to us in the Church of England 2,000 years later, in the midst of all our troubles and traumas. Or I'm not telling you that you shouldn't join Amy when Andy Lyons approaches you over tea later. I just want you to notice, I think we should notice, that the apostolic instinct in the face of danger and heterodoxy is not to immediately take fight His impulse is to preach, pray, love, and stay. 1 Timothy, as you know, is traditionally taken to be a pastoral epistle, a sort of mini-instruction manual for pastors alongside 2 Timothy and Titus. And there is a lot for us to learn here about pastoral ministry in a threatening context and in a mixed church. We're going to be looking mostly at chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2 over the next three days together to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. And the thrust of 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think, is that we must fight the good fight to restore true love. Fight the good fight to restore true love. The way I think that the whole chapter works is this, okay? So um, Paul gives Timothy this charge in verse 3. You see that? Remain in Ephesus to counter the false teaching there. He then tells us a little bit about what the false teaching is and what the false teachers are up to, uh, up to about verse 7. Then there's this bit about the law in verses 8 to 11 and about the mercy and grace of God in saving insolent opponents such as Paul himself was in verses 12 to 17. But then he returns at the end of the chapter in verse 18 to this charge 
I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, which is a reference back to verse 3. This charge I give to you to stay and command them not to teach any other doctrine. So verse 3 and then verse 18. Wage the good warfare, he says. And then he talks about two of the false teachers themselves. He names and shames them. Hymenaeus and Alexander. I don't know who they are. Do you? Nobody really knows who they are. But Timothy knew exactly who they were. So there you go. It's got verses 1 to 7 and verses 18 to 20. Those are about fight the good fight. And as we'll see tomorrow, the verses in the middle, 8 to 17, are about living with law and grace. So we've got bread and butter on the outside and some meat in the middle. We've already had lunch, so it's not making you hungry, is it? Anyway, bread and butter on the outside and the meat in the middle. And the thrust of this today, then, is that the bread and butter of pastoral ministry is fighting the good fight to restore true love. Let's start just by unpacking what he means by fight the good fight. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Let's look at them. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul has charged Timothy with this job of shepherding the flock at Ephesus. And this letter is a reminder to stick with that task. Ephesus, as you you may know, is a major city in Asia Minor, now Turkey, and one of the most important letters, um, important places in the whole of the New Testament, if you think about it. There are several chapters of Acts about Ephesus. These letters to Timothy, its chief pastor, the magnificent letter to the Ephesians itself, of course, and also Revelation 2, where there's a letter from the Lord Jesus to the church at Ephesus. Paul himself had spent many years there, pioneering and establishing the church, and Timothy's job was to secure it. And that meant guarding the people of God in that place from false teaching. The word there, anyone got their Greek open? Always have your Greek open if you've got it. The word is heterodidaskalane, to teach other doctrine. You know, hetero, didaskalane, other doctrine. To teach heterodoxy instead of orthodoxy. Now, I've heard it said, apparently a bishop said this to one of my friends recently, but there are many orthodoxies. He said, I want to teach orthodox faith, Bishop. And, oh, there are many orthodoxies, many different ways of seeing the word and seeing the truth. But that is clearly foreign to Paul's thought here, isn't it? Don't you think? The word assumes that there is true teaching and there is false teaching. There's a truth and there's an error that deviates from it somehow. 
Just as Paul says in chapter 6 of this letter, chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. We are meant to teach the faith, the truth, the gospel. And if something deviates from that, it is a different and therefore a false doctrine, which will not accord with godliness and will not lead to salvation. That's the point. So the very first thing I think we learn in these pastoral epistles is that pastoring will involve handling false teaching and false teachers. It's just inevitable. It is integral to the nature of ministry. It's pastoral ministry 101, according to the Bible. If you thought that ministry was going to be all about nice, positive things, you know, preaching great sermons, officiating at happy baptisms and marriages, having the status of a great community leader and a happy, contented band of cheerful followers hanging on your every word, think again. It also involves funerals and fighting falsehood. If you don't like that, tough, I guess, tough. It's what you signed up for if you're a minister. And if you're a layperson, it's what God thinks you need. A minister who will fight for the faith. Now, the false teaching in Ephesus seems to have been especially focused on, uh, do you see that in verse 4, myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship that is by faith. It's a form of teaching that's always posing questions, but never really giving people solid food to nourish them. It focuses on trivialities and clever twists and claims to deeper knowledge rather than the universally accepted foundations of faith. It promotes speculation rather than certainty about what God has revealed. I find it noteworthy that in the book, Living in Love and Faith, from the Church of England, this book on sexuality and marriage, it contains about 600 question marks and often appears uncertain and equivocal about what the truth is. Oh, some people say this, but other people say that. And we don't know which is true. This is not an uncommon approach um, in books that are challenging orthodoxy. Do you remember Rob Bell's book, Challenging the Doctrine of uh, Hell and Exclusive Salvation? Full of rhetorical questions. Almost every page is just rhetorical question after rhetorical (coughs) question. Who knows? Um, Irenaeus spoke about this in the second century, about certain heretics in his day, who had constructed another God out of what they called the ambiguous passages of Scripture. Weaving ropes of sand, he said, and affixing a more important to a less important question. They accused the Scriptures of being incorrect or not authoritative and so ambiguous that the truth could not be extracted from them. They were of 
perverse disposition, these people, said Irenaeus, and they depraved the system of truth. Interesting phrase, that. They depraved the system of truth, consenting neither to scripture nor to tradition. That's Irenaeus in the second century, which is exactly where we've ended up, I think, with living in love and faith as well, with proposals from our bishops which run entirely counter to the Bible and to the common witness of all churches everywhere throughout church history. Timothy, on the other hand, is to command such people to stop it. Stop it. He isn't just told to ensure that there is a space for orthodoxy within the church of Ephesus. Have you heard that? Let's just make sure that there's a a space for orthodoxy in the church. Orthodoxy is not an optional luxury. Oh yeah, it'd be nice if it was orthodox, but it'd be nice if I had an ensuite room here at the conference, but it'd be all right if I didn't. No, orthodoxy is not like that. It's not an optional luxury. Timothy is told to make sure that the whole church remains orthodox by silencing the false teachers. That's what a bishop is meant to do. Just as in the 1662 ordinal, bishops are asked by the archbishop, are you ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrine that is contrary to God's word? And we are meant to pray for our bishops to be earnest to reprove, beseech and rebuke with all patience and doctrine. That's 1662. Timothy, verse 18, is told to wage the good warfare, just as all baptised people in the Church of England are called to fight valiantly as a disciple of Christ against sin, the world and the devil, and to continue his faithful soldiers and servants until the end of our lives or until he comes again. As John Stott says on this verse, with some marvellous alliteration that he was so good at, he says, to defend the revealed truth of God against those who deny or distort it and to demolish strongholds of error is to engage in a dangerous and difficult fight. This is not a job for the faint of heart. It's not... It's not a tame profession, but it is good. We fight the good fight for all that is good and holy and true in this world so that we can lead people into the next. And as a minister of the gospel, Timothy is called especially to fight by holding faith and a good conscience. Uh, That's in verse 19, you see that? Holding faith and a good conscience. He's got to hold on to the faith himself. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, really? Hold on to the faith himself, not just teach other people about it. And he must have a good conscience before God, a conscience which testifies that he is neither hypocritical nor compromised in the exercise of his ministry. This is vital because those who silence the voice of conscience 
are bound to make a shipwreck of their faith, says Paul. That's what's happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 20. They rejected the faith, they rode roughshod over conscience, and the Apostle Paul has put them under some kind of spiritual or ecclesiastical discipline as a result. He calls it handing them over to Satan. And of course, there are countless pages, thousands of words that have been um, uh, written about what on earth handing them over to Satan means. Suffice to say, it wasn't good. You reckon? Yeah, we can say that. It wasn't good to be handed over to Satan. Their cauterized consciences and loose hold on the faith had led them, Paul says, to blaspheme. That's the word he uses, to blaspheme, to defame God, profaning his cause as if it was just another worldly project subject to human rules and control. Defaming God in the most impious and malicious way. You can't treat God like that. And expect to get away with it. Remember Uzzah. Who tried to steady the ark of God with his own hand. So have a clear conscience. Especially if you're in ministry. Be sure to do only what you know will please God. Or you will lead yourself and your hearers into bad places spiritually. As Luther once said, it is no trivial sin to harden oneself against conscience and to glory in a sin willingly and knowingly. And on another more famous occasion, he declared, I am bound by the scriptures and my conscience is captive to the word of God. It is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Indeed, if we do silence that inner voice telling us that what we're doing or what we're not doing is wrong, then we are sinning. Let God alone be the Lord of your conscience, as the Westminster Confession says in chapter 20, and don't allow anyone else to gaslight you into thinking that something they teach and they command is good when you can see that it isn't. Fight the good fight. That is the stewardship that we have been given by God. Secondly, let's notice that Paul says, fight the good fight in order to restore true love. That's my second point, and there are only two, so it's nearly over. My second point, fight the good fight to restore true love. Look again with me at uh, verses 5 to 7. The aim of our charge is love, he says, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying 
or the things about which they make confident assertions. So the aim of everything in this chapter and this letter is not to impose a rigid orthodoxy upon the church as an institution, you know, that some people see the, the pastoral epistles as a much later, even second century document um, that's sort of indicative of a bourgeois tendency towards institutionalism rather than the dynamism of Paul's earlier ministry. And so they say, of course, it can't, can't possibly be by Paul at all. But that's not actually the stated purpose of everything in this letter anyway, is it? To protect the fledgling church by setting up rules and canon law and regulations for its long-term survival, good as those things may be in their place. The aim of all this is love. It's love. Paul wants the church to grow in love and to build itself up in love, as he put it in the letter to Timothy's church, Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 4. For that, it always required a properly functioning, clear and orthodox teaching ministry. That is required for there to be love. In Ephesians 4, the gift of pastors and teachers was given to the church by the ascended risen Christ to prevent the church being tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful proposals at Synod. Sorry, deceitful schemes. Rather, the church was to speak the truth in love and work properly, building itself up in love. And that's what we also have here in 1 Timothy as well, in chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of Paul's charge to Timothy to stay and fight those wolves, the purpose of it was love. Love for God and love for all the saints, which requires a purity of heart and a purity of doctrine. Polluted streams make poor drinking fountains. It is not kind to allow fake news about God to spread within the church. It is not loving to permit disinformation to wreak havoc on your congregation. It is wicked to deliberately create a space for unorthodoxy in the church by design or by neglect because that doesn't lead to true love. It doesn't lead to true faith. Paul's aim in telling Timothy then to stop certain people from teaching heterodoxy is love. That's his motivation. That's his goal to restore love after some people have swerved away from the faith and wandered off. Because if false teaching runs riot, love runs cold. If false teaching runs riot, love runs cold. That's what Jesus told us. He said, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. You see the equation? More truth equals more love. More error equals more lawlessness, more hate, more betrayal, more falling away. That is the equation that Jesus set out. And it's the formula that Paul is working with right here as well in 1 Timothy. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. Certain people had swerved away from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. They wanted to do impure things, which they knew displeased God. So they closed their ears to the voice of conscience, though they may still have declared the same faith with their mouths on a Sunday, their faith became insincere. They swerved from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. And eventually, there was pressure to have the content of the faith redefined in an attempt to silence that nagging voice of conscience caused by their impurity. That's why false teaching often arises. It is an attempt to deal with guilty consciences and to justify an impure heart which still yearns for a religious coat to wear when love grows cold. What kind of false teaching can do this? Well, in Ephesus, it was swerving from the truth. Verse 6, wandering away into vain discussion. Constant, pointless, empty discussion. Giving people chewing gum for food so that they're always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Constantly having conversations and reports but never arriving at a firm answer having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power to change our sinful appetites and ways of life. Some people in the church at Ephesus, it seems, had the noble desire to be Bible teachers. But because they had gone down this dead-end road, their minds were darkened to the truth of God's word. And so, verse 7, even they didn't understand what they were preaching anymore. It was all so caught up in mental gymnastics and subtle distinctions and wriggling manoeuvres to escape and evade the obvious truth. They didn't really know what they were talking about. But they became so confident and bold in their incomprehensible and incoherent assertions of error that they almost began to believe it was true. And they probably took many people along with them in their long pride march through the institution. Just as Paul warned the elders of Ephesus that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul's point in 1 Timothy 1 is that the twisted hermeneutics of these twisted people would lead to them 
curving in on themselves and not to greater love. That doesn't lead to love. It leads to inward looking, curling in. I don't know. Maybe Paul says the aim of our charge is love precisely because these false teachers were claiming that they were the ones who really know what love is. Maybe their slogans used the word love. Love is love. Or something like that to attract and to fool people. But their teaching didn't lead to love for God or for the saints. It led to a snare of the devil, Paul calls it elsewhere, and eventually to exclusion from the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5 verse 5. The only way out would be through God-given repentance. Well, uh, how similar do you think the Church of Ephesus was to the Church of England today? If we really want to live in love and faith in the Church of England today, I think Paul would tell us we've got to fight. Fight for the faith against false teaching. Because that is the only way for true love to flourish. It's worth staying, isn't it, for the cause of love. Let's bow our heads.